Welcome to the vault where you can find the code to unlock your success. In this space, I invite real, inspiring and successful experts. We have eye-opening conversations about the way to reach your highest potential in life and in business. We will cover the mastery of mindset, energy, emotions, transformation, sales, marketing, thriving in business without losing your authenticity and balance. Hi, I'm Sonia Martinovic and host of The Vault, an entrepreneur, mindset mastery and online business coach with an obsession on real transformation. I'm on a mission to help entrepreneurs and other influencers master the mindset and build a successful and impactful business. Do you want to break free from your limitations and express your truest self in business and in life? Is growth your game and success your aim? Then you are in the right place. Welcome to the vault. Let's start cracking your code. And welcome to another episode of The Vault. And I'm so excited today because we're going to cover a lot of business skills like negotiation and decision making and persuasion and influence. So I'm very happy to have Andres Lares, and he is the managing partner of the Shapiro Negotiation Institute, which provides influence sales training consulting. And they have trained over 300,000 professionals in over 25 countries since 1995. So we're happy and very excited to have Andres here today. They have published five books and Andres has written the last uh, New York selling and Wall Street Journal bestselling book. And it's called this four-step process to influence people and decisions, which I think is amazing for anybody that's doing business. And he also speaks at conferences, and I can see that he's very excited about VR and AI-based applications. We just had a little bit chat about technicalities. So welcome, Andres. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm very excited for you uh, for you to be here because you cover such a broad range of specialties, right? And when I look at the the focus when it comes to decision making is such a big business skill. So can you tell us a little bit more about how you ended up doing all these expertise for for the business? Yeah, so uh, I mean, really luck. I think so much of our, our professional and I guess our personal lives is based on that. But I came through this actually a bit of a weird angle. So I worked in mainly in the sports world before this. And so uh, now around, I guess, 13 years ago or so, I came to do a project here in Baltimore for uh, the founder, who was kind of the, the former uh, uh, managing partner and, and president of the company, uh, Ron Shapiro, who was a very successful and famous uh, baseball agent, among other things. And so I came here to help uh, negotiate player contracts in the sports world. It was supposed to be a few weeks, then a few weeks turned into a few months. I remember at the time telling my later-to-be wife, uh, or now wife, uh, don't bother coming to Baltimore because I won't be here very long. And then 13 years later, we're here. So it's been a while. And then it's it's just something that uh, has been very interesting. I think in particular, our company's kind of done a nice, uh, even when we came in, kind of a nice balance between the academic and the sense that there's a lot of research that goes into everything to make sure that it's academically supported. And there's a lot of kind of evidence behind what we teach but very practical as well. So not only do we teach it, but we advise on it. So we advise on M&A transactions. We advise on sports negotiations. We advise on I mean, just about everything. And so I think that combination was just really appealing. And then uh, about four and a half years ago, I took over the company with uh, with a partner, uh, Jeff Cochran. And so that's that's how we got to this today. Amazing. And training so many students all over the world. I think 
you can you can find on some pattern when it comes to all these subjects right so if it comes to a pattern of decision making what have you noticed over all those last years and I'm also very excited to find out more about the connection between sportsman and businessman but that that will come later <laughs> So yeah, for for the decision making, so uh, that, that really kind of is at the root of the new book that we published, Persuade. And the idea is, if you want to influence others, if you want to persuade others, the first step is to understand how people make decisions. Yeah. And, and so what happens is, I think these are things that we might intuitively know, but we seem to forget when we're kind of in the in the middle of it. And so we need to be reminded exactly. <laughs> and so it's a it's a four step process. That actually, the first three steps start really, they're based off Aristotle. So in 350 BC, Aristotle taught ethos, pathos, logos. And essentially, it's credibility, emotion, and logic. And what he taught back then was that's how people make decisions. And so we kind of converted that. We expanded it on a little bit. We kind of make it a pyramid. So visually, for those that are familiar with kind of Maslow's hierarchy, think of a pyramid where the base layer at the bottom is exactly that credibility. And the idea is... If you're not deemed credible, the other side just doesn't even care enough to really even listen. So yeah. we see it, you know, yesterday was a Super Bowl. So in many parts of the world that was watched. But if you think about you know, all these commercials, well, you know, if we think of a commercial, for example, with toothpaste, right? Often we'll see a doctor or a dentist, I should say, involved in the commercial. And why is that? Well, because the credibility of a dentist will pass on to the toothpaste, which will then make us more likely to buy the toothpaste. Yeah. The thing is, if it's not a dentist, if it's just someone we don't know, and we really have no connection with, then we may not even care. We'll just flip to the next channel, mute it, disregard it, and the information goes in one ear and out the other. So yeah. credibility is that really critical aspect that makes us kind of care, right? And yeah. even, even process it. So that's yeah. the start. The next step is emotion. And so one of the biggest takeaways, and this is the perfect example, is we often forget. So most people, when they're trying to persuade, they use logic. They say, yeah. Sonia, let me tell you about the 14 different reasons that you should do this and the seven different reasons you should do that. But and isn't 95% of decision-making emotional? Exactly. And so people make decisions emotionally and then they justify them rationally, exactly as you said. And so the, that's a reminder that you really need to figure out, okay, what emotion is going to be the lever that I'm going to pull here? What do they care about? Why? And then how am I going to pull that lever? And so it's really understanding that. Then, of course, the third step is logic. And it's not to say logic is no more important. You talked about 95%. So, you know, whatever the percentage is and whatever comes in, it is important. And the reason it's important is the back end of that statement. People make decisions emotionally, but then they justify them rationally. And so yes. a week later, a month later, a year later, if, you know, Andres and Sonia are thinking about the decision they made, there's got to be something that makes them feel good about that decision. So, for example, for us, training 300,000 people isn't the reason people choose us. But it does help them feel good if they choose us that, okay, I, I can't go wrong. 300 other thousand people have been trained by them over 27 years, right? Yeah. This is the idea. And so um, finally comes facilitate action. So this piece we added from Aristotle. So Aristotle was certainly, uh, you know, one of the most brilliant thinkers of all time. He was uh, generally not selling much and not nearly as practical as we kind of have to be in, in 2022. So facilitate action is about kind of making sure you maintain momentum. And I think anyone can relate, mm -hmm. especially in sales, but even outside of sales, whether you're a coach or whatever space you're in, I'm you know, is this a good idea? Oh, yes, this is a good idea. You know, is this something you want to move forward with? Absolutely. And then two weeks later, nothing happens, right? And so yeah. facilitated action is trying to kind of combat that. Mm, yeah, amazing. And when it comes to um, this time we're living in right now with the pandemic and all the changes, a lot of businesses have gone through pivots, pivots and changes. So 
how did you feel that influences decision making? Because I think a lot of people need to make quick decisions. So you might be able to help on how to create a quick decision making. Yeah. So I think one thing kind of related to that that I think is worth mentioning is, you know, COVID has significantly changed a lot of things. And I was just in a panel kind of uh, last week thinking about this. And it's almost overwhelming to think about all the long-term impacts that COVID is going to have. But one thing I think is definitely worth pointing out in kind of the influencing space and decision-making space is the piece about how we're now mainly virtual. And so, of course, lots of people worked virtually before COVID, right? So there's a lot of companies, especially in the software world. Yeah. Where that happened. But because now we're all doing it. And so I think there's there's kind of a likelihood that it's, it's changed the way we communicate. So, for example, you know, oftentimes, but it goes both ways. So oftentimes people did in-person meetings. So, okay, you know, Sonny and I would meet to, in order to kind of have an important conversation. Now we may not meet. But the flip side is, you know, there's oftentimes where things were calls. And instead, now they're video meetings, right? Yeah. And so the idea is, I think a lot of people are kind of seeing the areas around, you know, COVID as, uh, you know, we call kind of leaner mm-hmm. medium. So in person is the richest medium possible. And, you know, certainly like a text would be the least, right? Because it's, you can't tell tone and because it's short and because there's no visuals or body language. Yeah. So I think one thing I think is really worth pointing out from a decision-making standpoint that COVID has changed is the concept that. I wouldn't actually call it, I don't believe we've taken a step back. I don't think we're actually worse off, but I think it's just different. So it's being really thoughtful about what mode, what kind of, what kind of uh, communication medium you need to use when. So for this, you know, we talked about it briefly right before we started that, you know, generally you want to see the person you're talking to and that makes yeah. it a better conversation. You get to see the feedback. Well, that, you know, think of the podcast that might've been done with audio only, they miss out on that. And so the idea is this isn't always a loss. Because we're not always a person. I think in many in many ways it's a gain because we're doing video more and the world's just significantly smaller that way. And so in the decision making and influencing area, I think it's something that you really need to be thoughtful about. Which medium do I use when? Why? And not just kind of like just doing it because it's easy, but really being strategic about it. Yeah, I think a lot of people enhance their skills too, right? In this period, not only for decision-making, but just how to iterate and how to to quickly change the situation. So I absolutely agree. Of course, we would like to be all out of it, but I think the skills people pick up right now are amazing, are very useful for the future. Necessity is the mother of invention, right? Is is a common phrase. And I think COVID is a Yeah, and it is a necessity. And now that people must do it, it actually forces them to do something that will be very valuable for business in future. I mean, even if you can travel all the time and even if you can meet people all the time, and I love connecting to people because I know there is a, a higher energy exchange, right? But then again, you can win so much time and so much value. You can, by winning time, you can give so much value by doing it virtually and uh mm-hmm. Amazing. Agreed. Sure. Yeah. Amazing. So then I would love to talk about negotiation. Yeah. So I love negotiation. I, I don't know exactly why. It's just like the preparation and making sure that the deal is well ended and having a, a great relationship. But what kind of tips could you give when it comes to having a good association? So a negotiation. For, so negotiations, you know, it's interesting. I think uh, when people think of negotiation, they often think of kind of confrontational, you know, you may think of like a flea market bargaining for something. And I think it's so much broader than that. So negotiation really, you know, it's, it's coming to a solution with the other party. And I think it, there is certainly over, you know, the 27 years we've existed, the 12 I've been here, there is a slow kind of progress in that direction where 
the relationship is important. And so it people understand that kind of negotiation is a long-term, not a kind of a transactional process. And so you brought up, you know, preparation and, and your enjoyment of it. I think there's not many that, that are like you, oh, really? so <laughs> success. but I would say, you know, we kind of, we work through negotiation we train on it. We, we break it up into three phases, three P's, yeah. prepare, probe, and propose. And the mm-hmm. thinking is it's not linear. This, you know, it's impossible to boil down all of negotiation to three words, but it does really kind of get you thinking about those phases. So preparation is really about efficiency and effectiveness, right? Yeah. It, yeah. We don't have an unlimited of time to uh, amount of time to prepare, but if we can do it systematically through a checklist or some system, we can repeat every time we get better, we get faster. And so yes. that's the same as an athlete. So actually you brought up earlier, kind of the, you know, the sports person to a business person. And so I would say there's a lot of lessons we can draw from sports. That's another example, right? If it's not about practicing the most, it's about practicing the right way. That's it, a really important piece of it. It's the same. So in negotiation, a lot of times people don't really think through, they don't know where to start. Right. And so mm-hmm. preparation is really about. So, for example, where would you start? Where would you start? I know where I start yeah. normally. But <laughs> well, so, you know, oh, there's an acronym we always talk about, which is um, you got, if you want to get paid, you need to prepare. And yeah. P-A-I-D, I think is an easy place to start. So you think about precedence. Have I seen this before? So that's important to both figure out how you're going to persuade the other side and also to really kind of learn from past situations. So that would be like comparables. If you're buying a house, you would never buy a house without looking at what the neighbor's house sold for. Same exactly. kind of Exactly. Yeah. So alternatives. Alternatives is really, you know, what else can I do? What else can the other party do? And what other deal structures are there? Yeah. So again, just kind of simplicity saying if you're buying a house. Okay. So if you don't buy this house, what else will you buy? And so it's a perfect reason. A lot of people say you don't want to get attached to a house you're trying to buy. And that perfect example is, okay, if you get too attached, the issue that becomes, you know, you don't feel like you have alternatives. If you don't feel like you have alternatives, you'll likely overpay for the home because you're so committed to it. But instead, if there's three houses you really like and you're in the running for all three, likely you'll feel less kind of compelled to, you know, get it at all costs and you'll likely get whichever one you get. Yeah. Exactly. And so, also preparation is also, uh, it's, it's preparation in interest also in the person that you're negotiating with and also preparation about every single thing that you can find in order for you to make sure that you have a good conversation and asking the right questions. Absolutely. absolutely. And interest is exactly what the next one. So it's PA, exactly what you said. Interest is the third. And so interest is really for two parts. So the first is, you know, certainly it, it allows you to realize how little you might know, how many assumptions you make of the other party. So it's kind of the drive you that you should be asking questions like, Sonny, what do you care about? What's important to you? Why is that important to you? You know, what else is important to you? Just really digging in. But the other part that it does is very often we go into negotiations and we don't actually truly understand our objective. And I know that sounds weird, but okay, you're buying again, a house is very simple, kind of that, you know, most people can relate to, okay, I want to buy the house, but you want to buy that house at all costs. You want to buy that house at a specific budget. You know, mm. only if, um, you know, the inspection comes back and it's ready to be moved in immediately or no work needs to be done. So re- really, what is, you know, or specifically within a certain date, because yeah, what are you negotiating the- about oh, anyway? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and so I think I think oftentimes we generally know what we want, but not specifically. And the more specific we are, the more successful we're going to be. And so that's the interests are really important there for both sides. And the last thing is D. So P-A-I-D makes up paid. And so deadline, and as much really, that's kind of creating a timeline and working backwards mm. from the deadline, right? So if you think about, okay, 
you know, whatever it is you're going to do and you're negotiating over, is there a real deadline? And if there is, working on a timeline, because what happens is we all hear kind of 80% of the negotiation happens the last 20% of the time. Yeah. And so what you want to do is you want to not be caught off guard. And so you want to have plan for that in advance. Exactly. So for example, the mistake that's very common is you make a lot of moves very early and then there's a stall because it's not that close to the deadline. And then you start renegotiating again. Yeah. And so you're going to be less successful there than if you kind of map it out backwards. And so if you're far away and the other party's not moving much, then being kind of patient with the process yeah. and not moving until you have to. Yeah. And also having like a, not a backup plan, but at least some options in your mind and also being open for opportunities, right? Because sometimes you get ambushed. And I don't know if you, I love the dragon's den. <laughs> yep. Yep. I love the dragon's den. And then sometimes uh, the entrepreneurs get ambushed by, by, by an offer, right? So being ready in order for you to receive anything coming from the side is also, I love that part of negotiation, but you see my slide. <laughs> <laughs> the Dragon's Den, in, uh, so I know in Canada, Dragon's Den is popular. And then Shark Tank is the kind of the, the, you yes, know, the US. Yes, yeah. And, and all those, I think, are, are interesting. And, and that's what happens, right? And I think that's why you see in many of those that now some of the, you know, some of the owners, uh, like the investors are, will often put a lot of pressure on purpose. And they'll do that on because- purpose, yes. You know, they might say, you know, one, Mark Cuban is known to that 24 second shot clock because he's a basketball team owner. And that's kind of a basketball reference. Or another one will say- you know, the next words out of your mouth have to be yes or no. And they're doing that to do it. So that's a perfect off, example right? preparation. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. If you prepared, then you shouldn't feel pressure, right? If you came in and said, I'm willing to, you know, I'm going to ask for this valuation, but the least I would take is this valuation. If you knew that coming in, yeah. when someone puts a lot of pressure on you, you would know whether you are or are not willing to do that. Of course, the problem is on national television, if you're making that decision under that pressure, yeah. the likelihood that you're going to make a mistake becomes really high. Yeah, and it is. There is a lot of pressure. And it's actually funny to see how people respond under pressure, right? Um, I mean, from the sidelines, of course. <laughs> yeah, they probably but, don't think it's that funny. Yeah, Yeah, but um, when you're in the middle, it, I, I don't think it's very funny. But uh, it's it's like very easy how they say, yes, okay, I, I will agree to it instead of giving a counter offer, right? And having, that's the preparation I was talking about, having something, having a stance when it comes to that and, and business. And then you see that the, the entrepreneurs also budge or the investors. So I, I find it a very, very interesting analogy to um, when it comes to negotiation. For sure. So tell me a little bit about, of course, with so many clients and people that you've helped, right? Can you give the one story that comes to mind that has been such an amazing transformation? doesn't matter if it has been uh, towards sales or influence or uh, decision-making or negotiation. The subject is all yours. But mm -hmm. something that comes to mind that you think, wow, what an amazing transformation by following these simple frameworks and simple steps we're teaching. So it's interesting. I think there's um, you know two kind of come to mind. So one is in the concept of how much this works, and it's uh, we have a we have an insurance client that's been working with us for for now uh, about three and a half years, and so they've done an amazing job. So they're a great client, and they value us. But I'd say what makes them so special is how much they kind of hold their people accountable to use the training. So whenever we do training implementation, there's aspects that we put into place to kind of guarantee a certain level of success, right? So we yeah. test the training to make sure it's relevant for them. The training is all experiential because that's it's a soft skill. So you have to do that. And then we reinforce it. And so the idea is if you're doing all three of those things, you're going to have success. But the most success comes from when all of the kind of the organization buys in, especially at the upper levels, and they really hold people accountable. And so that example, I mean, so this was uh, started a couple 
couple of years before COVID, it's continued since. And they they had such a dramatic impact on the revenue, their margins. It was like astronomical. And it's funny because I mean, I'm, I I feel very proud of the fact that we're involved with it. And I do feel like we, we played an important role, but so much of it is because the fact that they just really institutionalized and implemented this across the entire organization, especially in sales. And I think, you know, it's not the first time it's happened. It's not the last time it's happened, but that's just one of the examples that that's kind of what fuels us, right? As a company. Yeah, of course. That you make a difference and you see it. And it's so obvious. And in their case, it's tracked. I mean, they track their KPIs, they track the you know the revenue, sales cycle, and profit margins for every deal. And you literally see it on a map. Okay, here's when the training occurred. It's a huge boost. And when they reinforce and that boost continues, and it, you know, it's it's uh there's just so much satisfaction there. And it just did a really impressive job by them. I mean, just how well they did it. So that's one that comes to mind, a kind of reminder, hey, this stuff works. And there's a whole bunch of those, but you know, one that comes to mind. And then a flip side for me is one that I just learned a lot about. So we had a, a client in basketball that I've uh, worked with for many, many years. And I'd say there was always kind of a mutual respect. And so, you know, when we had conversations, I mean, they they came to us for advice. We advised them on, on negotiations. And so when they came to us, they certainly listened to it. Obviously, they were a client and they valued it. But one of the things I found is kind of under pressure in the most important situations, they, they wouldn't always kind of take, you know, my suggestions with the same kind of, you know, power as potentially yeah. maybe my colleague or their own. Mm-hmm. And so it's interesting. there's a few cases where I felt very strongly and, and ultimately ended up being the right decision, what I was suggesting, but it wasn't necessarily taken that way. And so one of the things that I kind of realized was, and, and this is kind of in the book that we I referred to as a lesson learned for me that even though, so my, my kind of my recommendations were sound, I knew what I was talking about. I generally wouldn't speak up unless I felt very confident about something, which yeah. I thought was important. But what's interesting is that did make it professionally, I was very well respected. But I think what happened was because I kind of only spoke up when I was really certain about something and I tended to kind of let all the others kind of overshadow. They never got to know me as a person. I didn't get to know them personally that well either. And one of the things that was really interesting that I noticed is as I got to know them more personally, so we just spent more time together doing totally unrelated to work things. Yeah. That the trust really went you know, up significantly. And then under pressure, when decisions have to be made very, very quickly, if I then, you know, made the same suggestion as I would have made six months ago, I noticed it was heated significantly faster with a lot more confidence. Mm. And so it just, it really always stuck with me. And it's something, it was a, you know, it was a very important lesson for me to learn that I think there's, you know, that's, you cannot separate the personal from the professional, in my opinion, not at that level. And so it's just the importance of trust and the personal aspect. It doesn't mean everyone's different, right? Some people it's chatting about your kids and some it's not. And some people it's about enjoying, you know, the fact that you might both be foodies together and something might yeah. be about passion for the, travel. The relatability, but, right? Exactly. Yeah. But at the end of the day, you know, that personal piece, it's such an impact on, on kind of our, our professional working relationship. And that, that always stuck with me. And it was, uh, you know, it's one of the many lessons learned. And I think that's how you learn, right? From your mistakes. And so um, those are kind of two stories that come to mind for me. Yeah, amazing. And Andre, it's, it's like, I don't like even preparing questions because I like the flow and the energy in the vault, right? So I always, but I had one, I always have a couple of questions in mind. And this was one of the questions, what was your biggest lesson? So I love that you shared that. <laughs> I absolutely love that. And I think it's a very important thing because it's about establishment of the relationship right and not forcing it right because sometimes you have relatability and sometimes you like two different one cup of tea and one cup of coffee right <laughs> yeah, Completely yeah, sure. different. but still there is always a mutual thing and there is always something that you can relate to or energy that you can connect to so the trust level and having a true rapport and true connection is actually a change maker in negotiation and sales and influence so let us talk a little bit about influence. 
you've written a book, right? For the business. Can you tell us a little bit about the book? Because it's the four proven ways towards influence. Can you walk us to a simple version of the four steps? Yeah. So the, the four steps. Um, so the book is, is, is called Persuade. It's based on um, and the four steps are actually what I talked about earlier is using those. So we talked about credibility, emotion, logic, action. Yeah. And so the book is really about how to use those, right? And mm -hmm. so, for example, if you go through each step, so credibility, I think, you know, very easy example of that is uh, borrowing credibility. So in the example that I mentioned earlier, you know, almost accidentally, okay, so dentists, right? So, yeah. uh, you know, mm -hmm. you, if you're launching a product and the idea is, okay, can you connect it with, if you don't have necessarily any own credibility because you're launching a new product or you're a new company, who can you borrow credibility from? And that's one of the reasons endorsements are so important, right? So mm. this happens in my space, right? So the fact that we've got kind of a whole bunch of Fortune 5,000 clients, if you go to our website, for those of us, you know, for those people that have not heard of Shapiro Negotiations, then the fact that we've worked with some of these leading companies that are kind of Fortune 500, well, that mm. gives them credibility. Their clients are even more case studies that say that. And so the reason is, mm. for those people who have never heard of us, we're boring the credibility of someone you've heard of. Yeah. And so, you know, the flip side is, of course, you have credibility on your own. That's even better. And, and that's what helps. At 27 years of doing negotiation training, a lot of people have heard of us, but certainly not everybody. And, and especially now, we're doing a lot more global work. So yeah. the idea is now the importance of kind of global clients to provide credibility to those that, you know, we train in now nine languages. So we might be working in Germany or China or Japan, or they may have never heard of us. And Are so, you in Holland? Are you in Holland? We're not. So we've done training in Holland. Yeah. But we've never... We don't, we don't do it uh, in local language. We've done it in English. So it's not one of our nine language, but we certainly have been there actually just before COVID. It's I was okay. There. We have English as a second language. So, exactly. so <laughs> yeah, English is, is quite common. So, so that's, you know, that's credibility for emotion. It's, it's really, as we talked about really figuring out which emotion you're going to pull. And so examples, you know, for example, uh, scarcity and, and fear, those are, that's mm -hmm. one that you try not to pull because it's kind of negative in nature. But as an example, how does it work? Well, you know, I don't know if that occurred in Holland too, but I, I know for sure in in, uh, in both the U.S. and Canada when COVID started, all of a sudden there wasn't a lot of toilet paper. And because the less <laughs> toilet paper you'd see in the grocery store, yes. the more toilet paper people would buy. Yes. And to be clear, at the time, there was no rational reason why we were out of toilet paper. Production of toilet paper at the time was not down. Supply chains were still doing fine. And so, I mean, eventually supply, you know, caught up, but it was literally the fear. If, you know, it was yeah. people buying six months supply, year supply. And so it's a, a perfect example. It's totally illogical, but it really took over. And so there's a lot of ways that happens. Yeah. And so, you know, that's just one of the many, for example, kind of uh, emotional levers you can pull. And so fear is one of them. Yeah. Um, and scarcity, definitely. <laughs> yeah, and, it know, has happened. It. it has happened. And there's in, in, in Holland. And okay. also, you know, I was not really going in on that, but then again, I was buying flour to bake my own bread. So, yeah. you know, at some point I thought, oh my God, let me just have flour. At least we will. Have bread, whatever happens. <laughs> yeah, and that exactly it just became natural to think it that way. So it, you know, it is something that that is powerful, and and no matter how illogical it is, and that's yeah. the point. Right? We're emotional beings, and so yeah. so that's a piece of it there. And then you know, logic. I think logic has a lot of different ways. I think the, what I focus on one is kind of like documented proof is a great way to kind of portray that. So the con, you know, case study is an example, right? So rather than you know, Sonia hearing from me how good negotiation training we offer, yeah. you know, how much better is it for Sonia to hear directly from a client in a video testimonial absolutely, or in a case study, right? And the idea is there's more proof there. And so, and the other thing I always talk about logic is you really want to make it as relevant as possible. And so 
you know, it's one of those things that I think, you know, because if we're going to use logic as the justification for them after the fact, right? It could we remember that people make yeah justifying that they have bought it or decided it. So feeling exactly. good about just it. thinking in that way, that lens of being kind of relevant and specific in that way. And then finally facilitate action. You know, one that I really like around you know how you can do that very practically is using a few options. So there's a very famous jam study and we kind of replicated this. So we did a study for the book. We, we did a study of a thousand decision makers all over the world. And we were really kind of, we wanted to ensure that a whole bunch of the studies we've been using over the last decade still apply. And so we basically yeah. test them in different ways. But one that was done many years ago that does this very well is a jam study. Well, there was mm-hmm. this jam study where people would go into a grocery store and they'd see a kind of a table set up as a booth. Yeah. And you see a bunch of different jams. So what's interesting is they tried everywhere between six and 24 jam options. Okay. What's interesting is when there's 24 jam options, a lot of people stopped. Yeah. A lot of people sampled, not a lot of people bought. When there are six jam options, less people stopped, yeah. less people sampled, but significantly more bought. So why did that happen? And the problem is if you walk up, you try to go, oh, this cherry is delicious. The strawberry is great. The tart cherry is great. The raspberry is great. And then there's too many options, right? So we talk about paralysis by analysis. There's too many options. The easiest thing to do is just avoid a decision entirely. You know what? This is great. I love this brand, but I, I just don't complicate it. Yeah. And you just walk away. When there's only six, it makes it easier for you to make a decision. Yeah. So we talk about facilitate action. I love that. And I think it's a great way to remember it. And so what happens is, you know, if you give people a few options, so in our research, we found three to five is optimal. If you give them a few options, they feel like they're independent. They feel like they're in control, yeah. which is really helpful, but it's not so many, it's overwhelming. So that's, it's a kind of a nice way to facilitate action and say, here's three or four kind of different options. And you provide that, then that person feels like they're in control. They can ask some questions. They feel like they're making a decision. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I absolutely love that. And you describe everything in in the book you wrote about uh, like completely when it comes to these four steps, right? So where can people find, where can people find the book? Uh, so hopefully anywhere we were excited (laughs) to launch it. So it's our fifth book. It was, uh, you know, big, uh, big shoes to kind of step into and follow, as I mentioned. So Ron Shapiro was the founder. He published four books before us and they were Wall Street Journal, New York Times bestseller. So it was impressive. And so for us, uh, you know, it was, I think it was it was both the experience of doing it. So this is probably the most heavily researched book we've published of the five. It's my first. So certainly for yeah. me, it was Congratulations. <laughs> uh, thank you. And then, so it was both kind of the process that went into it. We really wanted to be able to point to something that, you know, that this is heavily researched. So you can feel confidence in all the kind of recommendations we make, but at the same time, we want to make it really practical, right? The idea yeah. of persuading, which, you know, on Amazon and, you know, in the US, certainly Barnes and Nobles and Canada chapters and, you know, all the, all the major kind of, you know, distributors have it, but, uh, and retailers, but I would say, you know, for us, it was both. It was really the process and also the final output. And as the first book, you know, I learned a lot, a lot along the way. I'm not running to do another, but if I ever did another, I, I feel like I, I would be even better, but it was, yeah, it was a really, a uh, really great experience for me. I love it. And it sounds amazing. So I, I will definitely put it in the show notes that the listeners can uh, grab the book if they're interested. And I have just one last question. What is the one question that nobody ever asks you, but you would love to answer. Oh, okay. Uh, let's see. Hmm. I don't know. You know, that's that's a tough question. I, I don't. I can't think of. 
uh, we've done, you know, we've done more and more over the last couple of years, especially because of the book. Um, and I'm appreciative of our publisher kind of pushing us to do that because it's it's been very helpful. We've kind of done more, you know, podcast interviews, radio, TV, all that kind of thing. And so I feel like we get asked a ton. So I can't think of anything necessarily. I think, um, you know, for a little while, we weren't getting asked a lot of kind of the international piece, the cultural piece. I thought that was really interesting. So mm-hmm. if, if maybe a year ago you you had asked me that, I would say that would be one. But now I, I can't, I, I hate to kind of be, take the politically correct answer <laughs> it's a I don't necessarily have one but um, nothing specifically comes to mind that, that's a good thing too because then the questions are answered but sometimes something you know stays uh, stays behind like you explained just a second ago so <laughs> thank you so much and guys I will see you next week in the vault where we will level up again Thank you for listening to this episode of The Vault. Respect for showing up and creating your next stage of life and business. If you like this episode, I invite you to dive deeper and stay. The S stands for subscribe and share. Make a screenshot right now and pay it forward and send this to five friends who can benefit from this value. The T stands for try and transform. Try the technique, at least until the next episode. The A stands for action. Action creates success. Don't stay a student when you have a code. You should try to open the vault. And finally, the Y stands for you. This is about the most valuable asset of the vault and life in general. The one and only authentic you. So if this was your code, please comment and help the vault grow. Hashtag unlocked, hashtag next level, hashtag dive deeper. And see you next week to level up again.